Welcome to the Agriculture Revolution podcast, where you will explore the world of agriculture through the lens of entrepreneurship and innovation. By interviewing experts in a diverse set of careers, this podcast provides an interdisciplinary and comprehensive insight into some of the most prominent and pressing developments in agriculture. Whether you're interested in food security, sustainability, AI technology, or just interested in learning more about agriculture, this is the show for you. And now your host, Julian Jensen Lim. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Agriculture Revolution podcast. I'm your host, Julian Jensen Lim, and today on the show, we'll be talking about the role of chefs and restaurants in the agriculture industry. We'll be joined by a very distinguished guest, Matt Lee, who is a journalist having contributed to many magazines, including the New York Times, an award-winning cookbook author, and founder of a mail-order food catalog company. He also has his own cable TV show called Southern Uncovered with the Libros on the Ovation Network. Thank you for coming on today. And Would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. I'm Matt Lee. I'm one half of the Lee Brothers. Uh, we are food writers, um, uh, consultants, um, peanut boilers. Um, we've been at it since 1994 and writing about food since about 2000. And... Um, and living uh, and sort of communing with the ingredients and food traditions of our native Charleston, South Carolina. Awesome, so do you mind just sharing your experiences working in the agriculture industry? Yeah, so um, we've uh, only ever done farm visits. Um, Our grandparents met at a Grange Fair, so we have agricultural heritage. Um, but in the modern era, we've come to agriculture really from a journalistic place. Um, we're studying it, writing about it um, for the New York Times, for um, uh, Food and Wine, Bon Appetit, Gourmet, um, all of it. Um, we've just been endlessly fascinated by agriculture and how it's done and how difficult it is and um, how the elements of um, ecology and um, human tradition and um, history and um, technology all kind of come together on the farm to produce something that consumers get to enjoy at liberty without ever caring about any of that shit. Um, And uh, so unpacking what goes on on the farm has always been like one of our, our top interests in food. Very interesting. So do you interact with that mostly in a journalistic sense or do you do you explore that in, in any other avenue? Um, we are very close to farmers. For the last four or five years, we've been helping the South Carolina Department of Agriculture um, program big festivals and really connect with chefs in a way that makes sense for them um, because we come to it almost from a chef perspective, having published three cookbooks. Uh, uh, we've been guests throughout um, the nation uh, from Aspen, Miami, Charleston, Atlanta, New York, um, you know, Texas, you name it. Um, and, uh, and so we have a real sympathy for what restaurant chefs are up against um, when they um, step out of their comfort zone and into some, you know, random city with a demo kitchen. Um, you know, that kind of crystallizes like where we are, like how do you deal with that panic of being a fish out of water? And how do you connect to your ingredients? How do you make the equipment materialize? How do you present yourself in the best way to a huge, 
you know, audience of the general public. Um, those kind of questions and how you navigate that is kind of everything we've been doing the last uh, five to 10 years. Oh, wow, that sounds really interesting. Could you maybe explain like one of the projects you've done with the farmers in the South Carolina Department of Agriculture? Yeah, so one of the coolest things we did was about a year in to this traditional festival, it's an outdoors themed festival in Charleston called Southeastern Wildlife Exposition. And it's huge, it's 50,000 people in the heart of Charleston, which is a great food town. And the Department of Agriculture owns food at this festival which is a wonderful place to be. And they have a world-class demonstration stage for restaurant chefs to show off South Carolina ingredients, farm-grown ingredients or fished ingredients, uh, ranch-raised ingredients. And, um, and it's a wonderful thing to do to show that off to a large audience on a three-day weekend. But what we realized was pretty early on is the farm part of it was kind of being missed. And so what we did in year two was we insisted that every chef pick a farmer, a supplier, who they wanted to be up on stage with and who was available. And we um, got that pairing like in your field of vision. And so you got to see the chef next to the egg farmer, the mushroom farmer, the beef cattle rancher, the... Um, you know, the dairy farmer, whatever it was. And, um, and that made a, a world of difference, um, not only to the audience at that particular festival, but also to um, the chef and the farmer themselves. Like in many cases, a chef and a farmer, even if they're close, even if they do business together, have not met. And the chef, you know, time is really difficult for both chef and farmer. And so they may never the chef may never have visited the farm. Um, we find that a lot. And so what we love doing is to connect them in a meaningful way. They're not just doing it through the local food hub, which is great, which enables the process, but you know, there's still a distance. And so we try to encourage that chef um, to get up there, you know, that hour, hour and 45 minute drive, whatever it is, to like actually visit the farm. Because it's only when you visit the farm uh, that you truly understand the timing and the rhythms of the farm um, throughout the week, throughout the month, throughout the season. Um, and it really hit home when we visited this particular dairy farm, uh, Low Country Creamery in Bowman, South Carolina. And he just took us through a typical week and everything he was up against, like half day by half day. Um, and if he could only get restaurants to order, you know, 18 hours earlier every week, like he could plan so much better and accomplish so much more. And, you know, these little epiphanies, um, like you truly can't understand what goes on on a farm unless you visit it. And, um, and so uh, through this festival, we're able to make, you know, push them together, get them up on stage together. Um, they have to work together a little bit and then they get to know each other quite a bit more. And that kindles some really cool relationships that develop in the after effect. That is true. Most people have no idea where their food comes from. Um, so actually visiting it, I think that's, that's really cool how, you know, the farmer is now able to save, you know, time, you know, better plan. So that kind of leads into my next question. Can you explain the connection and relationship between chefs and farmers 
and how important is it that a chef is connected to farmers in the agriculture industry? So um, the relationship between chef and farmer is is essential, um, and it's uh, it can make so much difference um, to both parties. Um, it's a real privilege for a chef not to have to know anything about a farmer and to be ordering like wholesale through a food service provider. I mean, that is in some ways a real arrogance against um, the farmer's needs, the issue of perishability. And of course it's a convenience, um, but it's, it's a condition of last resort. Um, you know, to the extent that you do understand your dairy farmer, your vegetable farmer, your protein purveyor, your fisherman, like you just are so much better equipped to bring not just freshness and flavor to your menu, but also stories and uh, context and um, place and, and, you know, color. It's, it's really, you know, the, the chefs who are clued in to how they're getting their great ingredients are, you know, just that, that much more empowered to um, perform in the marketplace. It's a competitive advantage. Um, and it may cost more, of course, versus like punching a spreadsheet um, uh, on the U.S. Foods website. But, you know, and, you know, there's a place for U.S. Foods and Cisco and all the rest, but, um, but you have to see it in a much bigger picture and bigger system. And the chefs who are able to do that are in a great position. Um, they're obviously taxed for time. They don't always have every opportunity to visit every farmer. Um, but a blend is kind of the ideal at this point. Um, for the farmer, we found that so few of them really know where their products are going. Even if they're delivering through a very sensitive food hub and they have a lot of great chefs in prominent positions name checking their product, like they still kind of don't understand the impact or the, um, the meaning of the places where their products end up. And um, going forward, like a great opportunity we see is just to like kind of do a university for farmers and then a separate university for chefs where they kind of get just educated at the next level about what it means um, for those connections to happen. You know, what it means for you to have your food, um, your, you know, asparagus name checked at um, the, mo the hottest restaurant in the nation. Um, or vice versa, what it means for you to be sourcing um, French style yogurt from uh, you know, a three generation dairy in the uh, Bowman, South Carolina. You know, all of that matters and can add to value and impact and um, marketing advantage. Like it's, it's just like good economics. Hmm. So in what ways do you think farmers and restaurants can, or in what ways do you think farmers, restaurants and chefs can better collaborate to, you know, fulfill everybody's needs? Oh gosh, I mean, the best way to collaborate is to spend time with each other. And um, I know that neither party really has that time, you know, to be an yeah. independent restaurateur, to be an independent uh, farmer without just big corporate backing and like a, a budget for R&D and stuff like that. You know, it's, it's hard, it's super hard. Um, to find the time um, and it ends up being kind of like a passion project or a hobby um, 
pursued during leisure time, you know, or time off or vacation or whatever. Um, and especially for the farmers who are really tied to the land, um, if there's perishability factor, if there's any livestock, like they just don't have the time to visit the big city and, um, and do research, you know, research and development. And so, um, uh, you know, we just keep pressing on it. It's important to keep the communications li communication lines open to the, the best of your ability. Um, and what Ted and I love doing is creating a pretext. Like we've had a festival with 40,000 people. Come tell your story. Um, come get together with that chef you've been working with. Come get together with that farmer you've been working with and take an hour on stage and tell an audience of 200 people like what's going on. And, and you know, they find pleasure in, in that. And we usually create a, um, that helps make it worthwhile and underwrite their expenses. And, you know, um, we just all kind of do what we can to, to foster that relationship. Have you observed any trends or developments in agriculture that have influenced, you know, your writing personally or the restaurant and chef market? Oh, we've seen waves of trends in agriculture make their way into um, consumer culture through restaurants through media narratives and stories. Um, we've always been on the lookout for um, things that have impacted, um, you know, us as regular home cooks. In the early 2000s was the first time we did a story for New York Times about um, the blueberry uh, farming and harvesting areas of Southern New Jersey, where the domesticated blueberry, which is a huckleberry, was invented. And um, it was the first time we'd seen an action and uh, IQF machine, like a, a quick freeze giant industrial machine, just like processing a river of blueberries um, coming in um, and just freezing them in an instant. And, um, and nowadays it's more, I think about um, trends in, um, in thinking about agriculture and, uh, you know, biodynamic or certified organic, um, uh, now we're seeing a lot of like um, carbon neutral farming talk, not a lot of practice of that, but you know, it's, it's in the discussion. And so, you know, the impacts of farming, obviously everything that impacts sustainability um, uh, in the, since the pan pandemic, a lot of talk about um, marketing and shortening the distance between the farm and the consumer. And we've seen a lot of positive steps toward that happening <laughs> just inevitably because of circumstances. You know, people would prefer now um, to a much greater degree than, than nine months ago or even six months ago to get their products straight from the farm because it eliminates a trip to the grocery store. Um, and, and, you know, and, and an epidemiological like exposure moment. Um, and the farm is perfectly situated to receive well, some farms are perfectly situated to receive the general public because they're in the open air, they're outdoors, they're spread out, they're not close to other people. Um, but on the other hand, there's um, a whole um, you know, sort of compliance and processing curve that a farmer has to make to be able to receive the general public. Um, but there's pretty low hurdles. And um, if a farmer can, um, be receptive and, and take those steps to welcome the general public. There are huge gains to be had in terms of pricing, 
and um, and eliminating the middleman and eliminating transportation costs. And so um, it's been a really kind of exciting time for farmers in the last few months, um, just because we're at a moment that's destabilizing and um, and has disrupted the supply supply chain in some really interesting ways. And not all of them, um, you know, have like impacted negatively the grocery stores. Um, uh, they've benefited a lot, but so have the farmers, um, which is kind of interesting. Yeah. I mean, on, on the other side, how are the chefs and restaurants holding up? Like, I think we can all see how they're closing down, but do you have any insight into how that's, how that's working or how they it, plan on recovering? It's, it's a real calamity for restaurants um, in so many ways. It's because the idea of coming together in close quarters was the essence of that, that like X factor, the hospitality thing, um, the great night out, the um, romance of dining out um, involved um, intimacy and proximity. And so um, we've seen a few restaurants who've done okay because they were more geared toward, um, uh, you know, quick service, takeaway, um, you know, turn and burn kind of stuff was in their DNA. Um, you know, pizza restaurants just to kind of, you know, uh, paint a broad stroke have done kind of okay. Um, but anything that aspired to fine dining or just curating a special moment um, are on their last legs if they're surviving at all or they've had to um, reinvent themselves in some, some way that may not feel entirely consistent with, you know, what they intended to do and what their dream was. And so that's sad. And um, we've tried our best to support those partners and colleagues and friends with, um, you know, whatever they've figured out. They're pretty sharp people, you know, don't bet against an independent restaurateur because they have some tricks up their sleeve and have, um, you know, done takeout and done meal boxes and done, um, you know, really clever outdoor dining options and um, reinvented. I've seen a, a totally like high concept fine dining restaurant in Richmond, Virginia, like, you know, reconcept is like a Brazilian, um, you know, charcoal grilled live fire cooking restaurant in an instant because in their DNA, the way they started was they did pop-ups. And so they were pop-ups before they were bricks and mortar. And now that, you know, they've seen this threat, like they just responded to it in the most flexible, like um, animated and fun loving way possible. And I just, I just love to see that kind of thing. Um, but it's not for everyone, you know, um, we've lost a lot of great restaurants and um, hopefully uh, some, saner um, disease control leaders will prevail and we'll put this behind us in um, the six or eight weeks that it takes and um, move on the way saner societies in Europe have already. Yeah, no, I agree. It's pretty sad, but like you, like you mentioned, Richmond, that, I, that makes me happy seeing there's still that resilience and that innovation, you know, within, within the restaurant industry. Oh yeah. I mean, the, the restaurant industry is endlessly resilient. The only industry that might be even more resilient is catering. Um, and they have been hit even harder um, because as you can imagine, and by the way, we actually like um, uh, took jobs as kitchen assistants, prep chefs, 
um, uh, catering chefs um, for about four or five years to produce the book that was our most recent book. And it's not a cookbook, it's just a deep dive, an inside look into the way catering works. But those folks, you know, every single event is a large event. And so every single event has been canceled for the next, you know, umpteen months. Um, and uh, fortunately for them, you know, masters of, um, of appearance and smoke and mirrors and making great food happen in the most ethereal of circumstances out in a field, um, in a park, in a museum that has no, you know, running water or electricity or gas, you know, these um, people are master um, logistics, uh, masters of logistics and, and can make anything happen anywhere. And so a lot of caterers um, losing all these weddings have pivoted to um, doing, uh, you know, meal kits for um, consumers at home. They have taken on contracts to provide meals for um, emergency workers and hospitals and nursing homes. And, um, and they're beginning to slowly creep back into the like private party for 12 in the backyard. And they're going to figure it out. Um, but it's tremendously difficult, the mountains and challenges um, these chefs and food workers climb every day. And, and we're, we're just in awe of everything they're able to do and how they're able to remain positive and resilient and optimistic and to show up for work every day. I mean, uh, we, are, we are wimps. We would be crushed by half the challenges they face in a single day. Oh yeah, no, I bet. I think this is a good transition to move into your into your book. So, can you tell me a little bit more about your book, Hotbox, and you know how did you come up with this idea, and like what did you learn about the catering industry or agriculture as a whole? Yeah, I mean, it a world opened to us um, one day at the James Beard House. We were um, uh, just helping a friend, a chef from Atlanta, who was visiting and doing a dinner at the James Beard House, and he had brought in a catering chef, a friend of his to assist him uh, and uh, what the catering chef and his two assistants did that night just um, was mind boggling. They had never met the chef before. They had never cooked the menu. They had never been to the James Beard house. They just, but they owned it. They just, they knew how to apply heat to protein and cellulose and they killed it. And, and we could recognize at that moment having known many restaurant chefs, that this was a different world, a different kind of cooking, different way of approaching food and hospitality. And um, we started just talking to them and interviewing them and they let us into their world and hired us. And we kind of saw that there was maybe a book in it because it represented a huge, huge subculture within food that anyone who occupies um, the realm of the home cook or the restaurant world or the farm world would be fascinated by um, because it's simply not talked about. It's by design been behind a curtain for so long. And, um, and because of the way it operates, it, it's very um, guarded and it's very, you know, it's not their party, it's your party. And so they, they kind of stay in the shadows, but we wanted to expose it. Um, for the incredible cooking that was done there and also the um, resourcefulness and the inventiveness and the cool techniques that all of us could benefit from. 
if only we knew. Um, both restaurant and home cooks can benefit from understanding more about catering in this era, um, certainly. And farmers too, um, you know, the way they use products and volume is insane. You know, caterers are doing events for 1,200 people. Like, how do you do that? How do you channel, um, you know, fruits and vegetables and meats and, and fish and dairy products and condiments through that system? It's insane. And, you know, they may require five days to do it just to get to a single party. Um, but it's really uh, an art form. And it was, it was fascinating to study it and really, like, live in it for half a decade um, uh, to produce this book, um, which really is about telling the stories of certain people in that industry. Every part of it from prep um, to the forward facing, you know, waiters and um, prep and, and party chefs to the rentals industry. Um, uh, food design, we have a whole chapter on food design. We have a whole chapter on weddings, party rentals, you know, the chairs and cutlery and, hot boxes and everything that that finds its way into an off-site event like that it's just incredible and the history it's and it's a lot of new york history especially because much of the strategies and techniques for catering in the modern era were created in the crucible which is like new york city like upper east side fancy events um big galas all that was kind of invented in uh, the early 1970s yeah, no, I couldn't imagine producing that much. Like, I mean, when I when I was reading a little bit about your book, I couldn't imagine, like, how it's possible. Like, you know, chefs just pull up to some kitchen they don't own and then cook all that food. It's just amazing. But they are, um, a lot of them come out of military and a lot of them, military backgrounds, a lot of them come out of um, dancing and performance and theatrical backgrounds. Um, well, that's interesting. Well, yeah. What do you think explains that? Um, it's kind of obvious. Like, there's the show must go on thing, like the theatricality. Like, you know, we, we must make something out of what's really nothing. But also the planning and um, the methodical nature and, um, you know, everything that goes into making a huge campaign happen. And then the triage, you know, how do you make up for the inevitable contingency. Like it starts pouring rain on your kitchen or um, someone forgot to pack the propane tanks, or, you know, just that kind of improvisational aspect um, and the um, critical nature of it, it seems to, to sink. And also the, the movable feast part of it, you know, that you're never in a ho your home base. You're never in that home kitchen where you've got your mise en place. You're always someplace different from night to night. Seems to lend itself to the army brats out there. Yeah, no, now that you say it, that makes a lot, lot more sense. It, it is a huge feat, <laughs> like, like we already mentioned, you know, doing that many dishes. So it makes sense that, you know, the military or military trained people are able to do very well. Yeah, absolutely. So are there any actions that a chef or restaurant can take to create positive impacts in food distribution? Uh, absolutely. Um, from the chef side, um, you know, just simply being more sympathetic with what your, um, your you know, ingredient suppliers are up against. Um, as far as the calendar year, days of the week, um, like you can actually get better 
product by just being more sympathetic to the timing aspect of it. Um, and it, from every angle, um, like if you know that um, a bean farmer is, um, you know, sandbagging, um, you know, really great fresh um, legumes in a freezer somewhere for like four months after the season, like you might want to wait and let them experience, you know, a burst of, um, you know, high dollar um, uh, purchases from other people in more urgent circumstances so that you can make your succotash, you know, just a few months out of season and help them get rid of, um, you know, storage basically um, to your benefit and to theirs, knowing that legumes do beautifully in the freezer um, and taste great when they're freshly frozen. Um, you know, that's like, a, a difference that matters versus dried legumes. Um, not to disparage dried legumes, they're great, but they're like a, a fundamentally different thing than fresh and fresh frozen. Um, yeah, there's just a lot, a lot of insights you gain when you do the research and you spend the time, which of course we've discussed before, chefs don't have, but the extent they can find time um, to do that research, like there's a lot of great. Um, uh, advantages and edges that you can gain just by understanding what the farmer and supplier is up against. Mm. Yeah, I think that's that's very interesting. Like the how to improve that relationship between the farmer and the uh, the chef because if they both know more about each other, then they're gonna. It seems like mutually help each other out more. Um, yeah, oh, absolutely. And just having a direct connection, having this farmer cell phone can usually eliminate a layer of cost for the the chef or the buyer. Not always, you know, there's, you know, uh, the farmer's committed to a particular food hub. Um, but in some cases, there may be a product that they're just not selling to the food hub because it's too small in volume or not, you know, the quality that the food hub wants or it requires shelling or a processing part that the chef and her staff is willing to do. But so you get even fresher because you shelled it yourself on site at the restaurant. You know, there's just cool things that are happening around a farm. And to get in on those things, you have to be connected directly. Mm. So can you speak to the influence of local goods when being a chef? Is there a benefit to using these local goods? And have you ever had the opportunity to um, advise a chef on focusing on locally grown food in, in their menus? The benefits are freshness, texture, flavor. Um, at the most obvious, but if you go a level deeper, it's access to um, different flavors and different products and different, you know, ideas around food that can drive um, just great experiences at your restaurant, but also um, marketing advantages. Like you have something that's rare that your competitor doesn't have.